Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined by Dr. Nick Cole. He's a professor of public diplomacy at the University of Southern California, a global communication policy fellow, and he's at the Center for Communication Leadership and Policy. Welcome, Dr. Nick Cole. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Oh, thanks for having me, Jessica. So we are having this conversation in part because in a rare move, the British Parliament is being recalled so that members can debate and vote on a bill to enact the Prime Minister's trade agreement with the EU. Now, I wrote that, but I have to admit, I barely know what it means in the sense that I feel like an educated American and I feel so uneducated about what is happening in Britain right now. So, and in the EU more largely, I hope you could help me set the table. Let's begin at the absolute beginning. What is Brexit? Well, Brexit is an acronym for British exit, and uh, it means exit from the European Union. And, uh, you know, the UK had been a member of the European Union since the uh, early 1990s, uh, when the union came together as a, as a formal entity. And um, uh, in uh, 2016, uh, the then Prime Minister, David Cameron, uh, who'd had all kinds of divisions in his party over the relationship between the UK and Europe, uh, offered the people of Britain a chance to uh, withdraw from the European Union once and for all. And so that, that referendum took place on uh, 23rd of June 2016. Uh, a narrow majority of British people voted to leave the European Union, and it has taken all those years since 2016 to hammer out a deal and uh, get all the um, various procedures in order to uh, um, both leave the European Union, and this took place this time last year, and then to have in place a trade agreement uh, to replace the trading rules uh, that were part of a British membership of the Union. Why did Britain want to leave the European Union? What were the arguments in favor? Well, that is a, a really good question. And part of the problem goes to a British sense of self. And here, you know, I am a British person. And I must say that growing up, you know, in my own experience, I knew that people around me had a sense that being British was something special, was something distinctive. And whilst being part of the, as it was when I was a child, the European common market was a good thing for the country, there was a feeling among many people that Britain was too distinctive to be part of a homogenous regional bloc. And this was a feeling that was played to for political reasons. So membership of the European Union, membership of the European community, these were divisive issues, especially for British conservatives. And in fact, it was the issue of Britain's relationship with Europe that alienated Margaret Thatcher from her own a political party and was a big part of her political downfall. So it's been this toxic issue uh, in British politics for 
really for 30 years and had never really gone away. And this was uh, David Cameron's gamble as somebody who saw the logic of being in the European Union. His gamble was, I'll put it to the people. The people will decide in the favor of the status quo. And then the issue of the European Union will be dead for a generation in the UK. And I can get on with the uh, politics as I would wish. So he gambled on the British people wanting things to remain the same and was completely dumbfounded when a populist campaign led in part by Boris Johnson opted for uh, leaving the European Union. But for me, it was, I'd always assumed that we were converging, that as European countries grew, they grew together. And it's like somebody turning round on the road of history and saying, well, actually, we're headed back where we came from. Completely, uh, well, very hard to take, very hard to take. And very challenging when you believe that it's the wrong thing for a, for a country to do. So why, what are the arguments against? Why is it the wrong thing for a country to do? Well, the arguments against is that we're better off together, that there are economies of scale, that there is freedom of movement within Europe. So it was an amazing thing as a member of the European Union to be able to be born in one country, to work in another country and retire to a different country without having to uh, fill in any complicated paperwork or get a visa or anything, just to be able to move around in that tremendously large piece of real estate. Now, to Americans, uh, movement within uh, a large area is something you take for granted. But for Europeans, this was still something very new and, uh, and much embraced, especially by younger people. And now it seems uh, our, our world seems smaller, uh, options seem fewer. And uh, it's so sad to see Britain withdrawing from things like the Erasmus programme, this was a program where a student could do a, a year abroad without any complicated applications. You could, could go for a semester abroad or a year abroad at a partner European university, and the classes you took would be completely compatible with the rest of your degree. Um, or, uh, the UK is withdrawing from that scheme. It seems such a shame. So that's one really specific example, which I think, you know, both of us are academics and we, that really does feel like a horrible shame. Can mm -hmm. you give me more specifics just because it feels so remote to me? Yes. You know, somebody in Britain today, how is their life different as a result of Brexit? Well, at the moment, it doesn't feel very different, but the differences are going to start to mount up. It's going to take longer to get things. Uh, some products are going to become more expensive. There'll be more bureaucracy in traveling to Europe and uh, fewer opportunities. And uh, because the European Union is the major trading market for the UK, the UK is likely to be selling less doing less business and finding it harder for its main revenue generator, which would be the financial services industry, to function. You know, the UK attracted a lot of external investment as a bridge to Europe, this English-speaking point of entry to the multilingual bloc. But 
we're now a bridge to nowhere. It's harder to see the logic of investing in the UK. And sure, I'm sure that Britain will slowly build up alternative uh, reasons, but that's going to take time. And the projections are for a very, very slow economic growth for Britain. And, uh, you know, that's a depressing thing in any year, but at a time when the economy has also taken a big hit from the pandemic, it looks like very hard times ahead for, for the UK. Yeah, I want to get into the details of the trade deal, because obviously that's the pressing news. But as you're talking about Brexit and how it came to be and why it came to be, I keep thinking of this phrase, you know, American exceptionalism and, you know, the idea that Americans are different. And Mm -hmm. and then this idea that we also have pulled back from the world stage. And I'm wondering if you see parallels between Mm -hmm. Brexit and what's happened in America, at least in the last four years under President Trump. Yeah. And, you know, just to back up, Jessica, I think that the intellectual machinery of American exceptionalism was established during the period of the British Empire, and that really the American exceptionalist thought process was just kind of relabeling an existing sense that British subjects had of themselves as being the land of liberty where there were special rights and special uh, entitlements of citizens and where where uh, uh, there was a unique system of parliamentary government. And one way of looking at the American Revolution is that the American colonists were demanding the rights they had as English people. They just wanted them to apply equally to the colonies and had to form their own country for that to be so. So I think the basic framework of exceptionalism is related. And the stories British people tell themselves are not so different uh, to the stories Americans tell themselves. But maybe the American story uh, in recent years has more justification uh, to it. But it doesn't stop it being a real feeling that British people have about themselves. One thing that I, I should flag is the role of the media in Brexit. Because, you know, your earlier question about the benefits of the European Union, um, it should have been clear to British people that the European Union was collectively bringing investment to infrastructure in the UK. It was helping less developed regions. Uh, It was a big part of the reconciliation between northern and southern portions of Ireland and was generally uh, making a difference. But this didn't get reported. And part of the problem was with the right-wing British media, which loved these stories that we called Euro-myths. They would pick pick on exotic pieces of European Union bureaucracy. They would exaggerate them and turn them into um, uh, red meat for British tabloid readers. And an example of uh, a Euro myth was a story that the European Union uh, were outlawing straight bananas. Uh, There was another one that was about um, uh, condoms, arguing that the European Union was going to force British men to use Euro-sized condoms, which were necessarily smaller. Uh, So the European Union was cramping the manhood of Britain. Now, you don't have to be a Freudian analyst to get some of the uh, subtext here. 
And um, the, a journalist who really pushed these Euro myths was uh, Boris Johnson when he was working in Brussels for the Daily Telegraph. So um, he has a long history of of uh, defaming the European Union. And as early as 2000, uh, people close to Tony Blair were saying, you have to be really careful uh, with these Euro myths. If we let them uh, flourish, then we're going to be in trouble. You know, these Euro myths, I have to tell you, sound so familiar in the sense that I feel like we have been living through campaigns of disinformation and misinformation. And how many parallels do you see between again, the kind of popular mythology behind Brexit and, I don't know, let's just take the 2020 election that we've just lived through. I mean, do you see the same broad themes playing out in America? Of course, we're not looking to, well, I mean, some states are talking about leaving the United States, but just in a very, you know, a 30,000 foot view, do you see the same thing happening here with respect to the media? Oh, I certainly see the same problems of a confusion between fact and opinion, of people, uh, if you like, cutting off their nose to spite their face just just to make a good story for the media, and a decline in um, the reliability of um, uh, of media coverage. Uh, I think that that's just a fact of the world we live in now. And the kind of institution that the European Union is, and maybe the kind of institution that the federal government is, doesn't play to the spirit of the disgruntled lower middle class working man. In fact, quite the opposite. And if I was really passing out blame here, I think the European Union did a terrible job of explaining itself. And there was something very arrogant about the European Union. It didn't feel it had to market itself to its own citizens. And politics is always retail, you know. And I the European Union paid very little attention to that retail aspect. It, it only came into existence because Europe wanted it and the, the people of Europe wanted to work more together, could see the logic of cooperation. But my sense is that the European bureaucracy forgot about the importance of explaining itself. And this was brought home to me. I did a small study in 2000, uh, be 2006, seven on how much the European Union was spending on explaining itself on public diplomacy. And I, I took the US as an equivalent and I got a number and then I looked for um, what else it spent that same amount of money on. And uh, it was the same sum that was spent on uh, the cows of Scotland uh, subsidizing their dairy output in a year. Uh, was spent in the United States, I think, in five years uh, on explaining the European Union to the United States. Uh, they had their priorities wrong. They didn't feel they had to explain themselves. And the misunderstandings proceed from that kind of approach. Seeing, explaining yourself as some kind of optional extra with the level of transparency and the, the amount of media we have today, that has to be a mistake. 
I did not expect when we started this conversation that we were going to talk about condoms and cows, but here we are. And <laughs> that's the EU. That's the that, EU. We, ha- we haven't even started on fish yet, Jessica. <laughs> oh, I don't. That we might have to cut that off and save that for a different episode. Save that for another day. Okay. I, I don't want to lose the listeners there. So, um, you know, we do. Gosh, I, I mean, I would love to have these broader conversations with you even longer, but I do want to explain to the audience what's happening right now and why this is a pressing issue. So as we talked about in the very beginning, there is a trade deal on the table. Normally parliament would be home. This would be the holiday season, but they've been called back. So very broadly, can you describe to us the contours of this deal and really what it would mean? Well, um, what it means is that the it'll still be possible for the European Union and the UK to trade with one another under fairly advantageous terms. So that's good. Uh, the most controversial element in the deal, actually, is the concession that the UK government has made to the European fisheries industry, saying that European fishing boats can presently take fish six miles away from the UK coastline. So uh, for British fishermen, they feel they've been completely betrayed. There will be fishing limits added incrementally in coming years, but uh, that hasn't happened yet. So I kind of felt like we had a deal and you promised me we weren't going to talk about fish. And yet here we are. We did. <laughs> I got it in there. Well, but the thing is that fish is uh, currently the, um, uh, that's the live issue. That's what's. Right. Uh, causing the, I say this, it's the fish that are causing the stink. Uh, sounds like uh, uh, the fish yeah. have gone off, but they're, 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 you know, the fish are still in the sea, uh, but they're soon to be caught by Spanish and uh, French fishermen. Uh, within sight of land, it, it feels like uh, this is uh, exactly the sort of thing that the Brexiteers were hoping to avoid, but they can't have it all their own way. There have been some great descriptions of the the arrogance of the Brexit negotiations, saying it's like uh, it's like calling the cable TV company and saying I'm not going to pay my bill anymore, but I still want to get all those great channels. Um, something had to give, uh, and uh, there had to be some kind of concession from the British government. And I'm sure that other concessions are going to emerge in coming days as as people really get down to the um, brass tax within this thousand page trade agreement that has been um, been signed by Boris Johnson. So does the trade agreement, that's a great analogy, by the way, but does the trade agreement kind of lessen the blow of Brexit? I mean, does it pull back the impact then? Yes, absolutely. There was this thing called no deal Brexit, uh, which was looming. And that would have meant that um, all trucks had to be searched and uh, it would have been a, a kind of, um, it was the big bogeyman, the, the threat of a no-deal Brexit. The economy would have ground to a standstill and uh, they'd have had to reinvent border procedures from the ground up. And it would have been particularly hard on on Ireland, where more or less everything that the south of Ireland, still part of the European Union, uses has to come through the Channel Tunnel from uh, the rest of the Union. So Ireland would have been held hostage until Britain could have sorted out its customs requirements. So I'm glad that hasn't happened. 
Let's talk about Brexit and immigration a little bit, because I know those two topics have been connected. What do we know about how Brexit will affect immigration and whether or not that was part of the passage of Brexit? Ah, yeah. Well, I think once you raise the subject of immigration, you get to the heart of populist politics. And it's one of the things that links the mood in the UK with some of the issues around Trump in the US. The campaign for Brexit was fought on the issue of uh, take back control. And one of the things that the Brexiteers wanted to control was British borders. They had enormous posters on uh, UK billboards showing hordes of migrants lining up to get in. Actually, they were lining up uh, uh, in Slovenia, not in, in the UK. But the implication was that there were these hordes of people waiting to come into the UK and take British benefits. And the idea of controlling the border, of preventing legal migration into the country was a big impulse. And some of it was completely racist and with an idea that people coming from the Commonwealth, people coming from non-EU countries would also be limited. And of course, this has got nothing to do with that migration into the uh, UK. But certainly migration and control of the border, control of who gets to live in the country, that was a, a live wire at the heart of the Brexit circuitry. And boy, did the Brexiteers know how to push that issue, how to allude to it, how to use dog whistles. And um, for many people, that's what they thought they were voting for, was to limit immigration into the UK. Is there anything else that you wish Americans knew about Brexit in general or this trade deal more specifically? Or do you just wish that we didn't have to ask these very basic questions that we all know? No, I think it's I think it's really important to uh, uh, to think about this whole process, both because uh, I think you can see in Brexit the danger of populist uh, politics um, I think you can also see uh, that the uh, Britain uh, is looking for a trade for a replacement trade deal with the U.S. So uh, this is going to be an American political issue soon. How should Britain and the U.S. relate to one another? And uh, Biden has said um, that uh, he wants to make sure that Ireland is being treated properly and that he is not going to just rush into a special uh, trade deal with the UK. Uh, so, um, you know, this is something, this is an issue for Americans to uh, to track and pay attention to as well. I feel like I learned a lot more than just watching The Crown, which may be how <laughs> most Americans are getting their education about UK history at this point, I fear. So... <laughs> Well, it's uh, it, the crown. I think the crown. Uh, it certainly gets the spirit of things very well. <laughs> so, how does it get the spirit of things? I mean, is this your sense of what happens in Buckingham Palace and in the royal family more generally? Oh, pretty much. <laughs> That's uh, yeah. Well, I I, I watch and uh, I, I argue less with the TV when the crown's on than other TV programs as a historian. So, uh, no, I, I think they've, there are artistic liberties have been taken, for sure. 
But I think that it's a good starting place for understanding what's been going on in Britain over the last uh, 50 years. <laughs> Truly, I do think it is how most people are getting their education for what for is sure. happening in Britain. Yeah. And, you know, that speaks a lot about our society and topics that we'll have to tackle on another day. Now, mm-hmm. As loyal listeners of the Passing Judgment podcast know, I always end by asking my guests the same three questions, which have, I believe, nothing to do with Brexit, condoms, cows, or fish, but we'll see what your answers are. So here we go. Which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party and why? Oh, which famous person? I think it would be, as a British person, it would be very interesting to meet Winston Churchill and it is connected to Brexit because his centrality in the British imagination is part of what people evoke with Brexit and want to hold on to, even though he was himself uh, convinced of the wisdom of European unification. And it, maybe it would be nice to have dinner with him and have him tell us that we're all raving mad. What are you thinking about? You know, that, I think that then uh, to be able to say, listen, Boris, Churchill thinks you're really messing up. Yeah, no, I so I think that would be who I would pick. We had just this week an American answer of Winston Churchill, but we did not get the imitation. We didn't get <laughs> so so you win on this one. It's yeah, not okay, okay. That's good. Now, second of the three questions, you're going to be stranded on a desert island and you can bring one meal with you. What is one it? meal? One meal. Well, what I crave since moving to the United States is the uh, South Asian food that was available when I lived in the UK. And I would love to have the um, uh, dinner that was available from Shah's Balti in Birmingham. <laughs> but they're, they're long closed. I think after their, their best customer migrated to the US, uh, their, their fate was sealed. Um, but uh, a really nice Indian uh, dinner would be a terrific thing to have on a desert island. And many other British people would tell you the same. Which is, of course, part of globalization and sure. immigration patterns. Now, last question. You get one superpower for an hour. What is it and why? Uh, time travel. Any historian would tell you know any historian would tell you that. Well, you have brought us forwards and backwards, so we appreciate that. Dr. Nick Cole is a professor of public diplomacy at the University of Southern California. You can find him on Twitter at Nick Cole. Dr. Cole, I have loved passing judgment with you. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me, Jessica. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod, and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. Thank you to our listeners for your support. This is one of our first more international facing conversations, and I have really enjoyed it. I hope you do too. Have a great day, and we'll talk to you soon.